this is D.L. Hudson. Welcome to Church and Culture. This show is devoted to exploring the interaction between our faith and our culture. Each week, I will talk with expert guests on topics ranging from literature, art, and music to politics, liturgy, spirituality, and education. Thank you for joining us. I want to tell you a little bit about my guest today. He's kind of a remarkable guy, Peter Kwaneski. He's written an amazing amount of books, an even more amazing amount of articles, thir- over 1,300, and translated into 18 languages. I think I would describe him as a Thomist who loves great music, and he not only loves it from a point of view of a listener, like I do, He loves it from the point of view of being a composer, a choir director, an expert really on Catholic sacred music and the role of Catholic sacred music in the liturgy. This book that he has written is, I don't know, it's just one of the best books I've read in a very, very long time. It was recently published by Tan, and they do a beautiful job of presenting it. And it is a kind of book that will make you insist, as it were, on the kind of liturgical practice and liturgical music that you have come, probably come to the conclusion, it's just not going to happen. The name of the book is Good Music, Sacred Music, and Silence, Three Gifts of God for Liturgy and for Life. Again, it's Good Music, Sacred Music, and Silence. I really want you all, if you have any interest in church music and on the what's happened to our liturgy and what and music and silence's role in that, you got to you got to get this book. Peter, welcome to Church and Culture. Thank you so much, Dale. Re- really appreciate you inviting me. Well, you know, we're kind of a match made in heaven in terms of what you're interested in, what I'm interested in. <laughs> So I just want to congratulate you taking on this this project, and I would like to get right at the heart of something that I know if we were sitting in a room of 15 people and wanted to talk about church music, what what would come up? What kind of conversation would we have? Now, let's let's take the one where you pose the question of why pop music, rock music, guitars, uh, and in my in my church, bongos, Peter, bongos, uh, which I almost start dancing. I mean, it's hard not to sway a little bit. Uh, when someone says to you, "Well, that's just your taste; it's not my taste," what? Mm-hmm. I love the way you answer that. So give it, give us a little uh, summary of that. Yes, yes. Well, I, you know, I'm not sure exactly which passage you have in mind in the book, but certainly the first. The first part is very much a defense of the idea that there is such a thing as good music, um, music that is uh, well-crafted, uh, that is beautiful. We can actually make some criteria for what beautiful music should sound like, and that indeed there's great music um, you know, that our culture, our civilization has, has given to us uh, in the works of countless composers, um, and that it's, it's not somehow snobbish um, or rarefied to take an interest in, you know, in, in our own artistic and cultural education and development. Um, most people have a really stunted sense of, of you know, of, of the arts in general, uh, and I think that's, you know, that's really unfortunate because we're missing out on a whole realm of human perfection here that God wants us to have. Yeah, you said, you said don't let the good be the enemy of the perfect. Was well put. <laughs> yes. yes. And yes. I also want to mention that you you point out that church documents themselves forbade the use of this kind of music and these kinds of instruments. That's right. That's right. So one one thing that's very interesting when you start digging into the church documents on on how music should be for liturgy specifically, um obviously it's a much bigger discussion to talk about 
everything outside of the liturgy. But within the liturgy, uh, the music is supposed to serve a very specific function, namely to clothe the texts of the liturgy in suitable melodies, um, yeah. to lift the spirit, the soul to God, to prayer, to devotion, um, not to be distracting, not to call attention to itself, not to make us sway rhythmically. That's for the not dance hall. not to make you want to dance. Exactly, that's for the dance hall, yeah. uh, and there's definitely an appropriate place for that. I'm not suggesting, of course, that that everybody should be a Carthusian monk who only you know su- who subsists on chant and silence. Um, that's great for the Carthusians, but not for the rest of us. Uh, but but within the mass, uh, Gregorian chant in particular has has uh, and I would call it a supernatural perfection uh, for conveying the texts of the liturgy in a way that stimulates um, meditation and contemplation uh, and and worship really adoration of God uh, and this is something you can you can you can perceive more by experience than by argument I mean obviously we can talk about it but what I tell people is you know go to if you can if you can do it go to a church where they sing the chant during the Mass, or go to a monastery, a Benedictine monastery, even better, for a retreat, you know, and just and just drink in, absorb that that sonic prayer, that that, uh, that musical beauty. Um, it's just, a, it's, it's remarkable. It's, almost, it's difficult to describe, but it's divine. Well, you know, I like the fact that you went further than anybody I've read in actually describing how rock music is different in terms of its beats and the emphasis, say, in a four-note line of what those beats are. I found that fascinating. You basically showed how rock, the beat of rock music is the equivalent of a pelvic thrust. Mm -hmm. Yes. This is one of the things that, of course, I'm, you know, I, I expect to be controversial among readers. <laughs> well, you and Alan Bloom, okay? Yes, yes. But, of course, I, you know, it's, it, it's interesting you should mention Alan Bloom. I should have, I really should have footnoted closing of the American mind there if I didn't, um, because and I, I wasn't trying to hide my debts. I think it just didn't occur to me because I read that book such a long time ago. Uh, me, uh, me but, too. It, but, yes. it, it, but he, and of course he has issues of his own, but I think he, you know, because of his deep study of Plato, um, and, and I've studied the same things in Plato and Aristotle that he has, um, the ancients actually were very, very insightful about how music stimulates and shapes the passions, the emotions of a man. And um, and in particular, they, they recognize that music could have quite contrary effects. I mean, we know this, right? Lullabies put a baby to sleep. You know, marching music makes soldiers want to go to war, right? Or, or at least march in a certain direction, you know, for a long time. Um, and, and so and rock, what rock music does is it, and using rock music in a very broad sense, um, it stirs up the 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 irascible and concupiscible appetites. That is, it stirs up primarily angry feelings and lustful feelings. That's how I would put it. And the, the lyrics themselves that go with the music suggest the same thing. And explain how that works, the fact, the fact that they don't emphasize the downbeat. Yes, yes. So in, in, it's, it's quite interesting to me that in all Western music, um, and I don't know, this could be even true much more broadly, but I'm just going to stick with Western music. Um, the, when you have music in, in a meter, either three beats per measure or four beats per measure, think of a waltz or just a standard. Most music is written in, in common time or four beats to a measure. Um, all the music of our tradition emphasized the downbeat, the first beat, and then a weaker emphasis, usually on the third beat, um, and that's it. That's how it worked. So, da, 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 like that. Right. Um, and, and this is a very natural kind of rhythm. It, it moves ahead in a stately pace. It's like walking. Um, you know, it, it, it just feels right. What, what rock music does uh, is it uses constant syncopation. Syncopation is the accentuation of the off beats, the weak beats. So, ba, ba, ba. Like that, so it, it's that kind of propulsive syncopation, uh, that that propulsive rhythm, that off rhythm, um, is very stirring. It stirs up those passions, 
Uh, and, you know, it, it, that's why I call it, I call it the MSG of music, you know. Well, I, th- I think, you know, to me, I've been, this, this goes back to my Baptist years. Um, you know, I can, I don't, you don't know this, but I converted in, at age 34 after running into Maritan, Aquinas, Gilson, Dante, mm-hmm. etc. Ah, the uh, company, yes. <laughs> but, you know, the short time that I was a Baptist, even when I was at Princeton Theological Seminary studying there, uh, there was this rage about just taking pop songs and putting religious lyrics. Exactly. And as you point out, you don't, you don't separate the felt meaning of that music and its place in a culture just by replacing it with lyrics. Yes, precisely. Yeah, no, there's a really interesting interplay between music and lyrics. Um, you know, and by music there, I mean the rhythm and the melody and the harmony on the one hand, and, and the words on the other. And they can fit well together or they can fit badly together. Um, when you take a psalm of David and you set it for, you set it to Gregorian chant, it becomes a prayer that rises up to God and to the throne of heaven and carries the soul gently with it. Um, when you set that to, let's say, um, amplified guitars and drums, uh, you know, let's say an English psalm uh, setting, what you're, what you're basically doing is co-opting that psalm for a more secular mentality. Um, you're making it a form of entertainment, um, a form of, of uh, you know, of, of something that you can tap your toe to and... It you know it might be exciting for people, but um, that's a kind of superficial approach to what what religious music is supposed to do. So yeah, I, I think very, you know very much the, the the lyrics can reveal what's going on in the music, but they can also be at cross purposes with it. I am talking with Peter Kwasniewski, and we are talking about his latest book which is entitled Good Music, Sacred Music, and Silence on TAN. I hope TAN is planned to put this out in audiobook, because I think it would work very well. And he really drills down in terms of engaging things like praise and worship music, for example, which... I'll just be honest, I can't stand. I'm one of those people you describe as gritting my teeth in mass. So, but praise and worship seems to be ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what's, what's interesting, Deal, is that there, there was a time when it was taken for granted. This would certainly have been the case from the 1970s until fairly recently, um, maybe the, the, the 2010s, that it was taken for granted that the only way to reach young people and to keep them in church or to attract them to church was to play the kind of music that they listened to in their cars as they drove around or on their or in their on their earbuds when they exercise at the gym or something like that. Uh, and uh, there, there was one very basic problem with this strategy. It's a problem it's, that that it's always had, and that is the church cannot compete with secular um, secular companies secular artists if i can secular consumerism yeah se- secular well yeah so <clears throat> the 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 pop music that's being generated by the you know the multimillion dollar record companies and pumped out through spotify is going to be way 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 better at doing the kind of thing that that music is meant to do, you know, even if it's something that I would argue is unhealthy, it's you know, it's it's better junk food. It's better no, it is unhealthy. Right? It's totally unhealthy. I mean, there's yes. not there's no melody. It, the only interest in it is rhythmic, and that and therefore it's banal because you've heard it hundreds of times before. Yes, and um, people people want that. Some people want that, especially for say being pumped up at the gym. And when when a church tries to replicate that with something like Life Teen, um, and sometimes even brings in strobe lights, you know, I've seen pictures of this kind of thing in in churches. Uh, you know, um, it's it's going. It, it might have a sort of 
temporary, superficial excitement to it. Yes. But it's not going to lead to a deep faith. It's not going to lead to a long-term commitment. It doesn't actually form people in the right way for worship. It's like, um, it's it's, like a diet of Big Macs. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's ephemeral. It's, it's ultimately ephemeral, and it can't compete with secular culture and shouldn't even try to. It's, a, it's the wrong concept, this concept of the Church accommodating itself to the secular culture. And so what I was going to say is that I think in, in more recent times, especially since Benedict XVI, it's, it's just undeniable now that there are a large number of young people in the Church who don't care for that kind of thing and absolutely don't want it. And what they want is... Gregorian chant and Renaissance polyphony and pipe organ music and well they want the traditional Latin mass too you know <laughs> you and I should start singing uh, Robert Parsons Ave Maria to give a demonstration <laughs> I, I I sung in a scola with the assistant with an assistant director Robert Shaw for many years mm. while I taught in Atlanta so I have a little little experience of trying to be an you know artistic participant. And I particularly love that part because I got a little solo right at the right, in the, you know, like the first five or six uh, stanzas. Here's something uh, about the Ave Maria. That that part. That's it. Ave <laughs> Maria. Uh, a great piece of music. I would faint. I would faint in my pew if I was in a church and they started singing that. I bet you. I bet you've probably conducted it when you when you were a Wyoming Catholic, which you helped to found. You were also uh, the choir master. That's right. That's right. Yes, I did that there for twelve years. Um, wonderful experience. And uh, I, we never did Parsons Ave Maria. I did that with a choir at Thomas Aquinas College back in the nineties. Even um, and then I did it again at an Institute of Christ the King Parish, but. At Wyoming Catholic, we had a really good music program. We had uh, a choir of, I would say, about 40 students, which which was which was a, a large part of the student bodies. It's just, you know a micro college, um, and uh, we we sang, you know, we we sang Palestrina, Victoria, Bird, Talis, um, you know, all good uh, guys. Lassus, all kinds of wonderful stuff, and of course the chant, and the students just loved it. They loved it in the choir. They, it was. It gave them such a sense of accomplishment and pride in being Catholic. You know, this is our heritage. Well, you feel um, lifted up. Yes. Don't you? Yes, and of course, the people who attended Mass, you know, you know, were were, you know, they were in heaven as far as the music was concerned. You know. <laughs> so. You know, when I was in New York, Fordham, we used to go every Sunday to Saint Ignatius Loyola, and I remember the first time we went there, I heard. Arvo Perrett and Goretzky. Mm. And I mean, that's, that's to me is a mass. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I, I'm, I'm sure you, you picked up, uh, in the book on how many times I mentioned Arvo Perrett. Uh, oh, yeah. I think, I think he gets more mentions than any other, certainly than any other modern composer, um, because he, he is absolutely my favorite and I, I mean, of, of living, living composers. Have you uh, met him? I have not met him personally. I did have the the privilege of talking to him on the phone for about twelve minutes oh, uh, many years ago because I wrote I wrote a set of seven pieces of music. Uh, they they set to music the mandatum text, so that is the scriptural texts during the washing of the feet ceremony on Holy right. Thursday, and um, I I wanted to dedicate these pieces to to Perrot for his seventieth uh, birthday. Um, and I, I, you know, of course, that's a kind of a presumptuous thing to do. But they, the pieces were inspired by his music, and they were somewhat in his style more than yeah. anything else I've written. So I thought I would try it. I wrote to his agent in Vienna, and his agent said, "Oh yes, yeah, send me the music. I'll send it on to him." And then a couple of months later, I got a phone call from Arvo Pert from Estonia. I'm glad <laughs> so, you were home for that call. I, yes, I. Well, actually, the funny thing is, I wasn't initially home, so I got a voicemail from him, which I, which is a treasured, you know, it's a, I got two right. voicemail from him, uh, and then and then I called back that number, and then we talked for 12 minutes. So, wow. Did, did he enjoy the music? He did. Yes, he said. He he said, "This is real church music. I love the ah. That's what he said. So, <laughs> Uh, well, I like so he, the, I very much like the quote you pull from him, and that is that our music 
uh, expresses what we think of life. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you even if you watch uh, any music award show, it's pretty sad the view of life that you see yeah. pop up there. Yes, exactly. No, thank you for for raising that point. Um, the way I would put it is this: right, um, modern modern Western people, and this has been going on now for quite a long time. I mean, since the 19th century, um, but certainly in the 20th century. Uh, Modern Western man vacillates or oscillates between nihilism and hedonism. Um, and those two things are two sides of the same coin because, yeah. you know, if you, if you hold some kind of materialistic evolutionary paradigm, then we're pretty much meaningless specks of dust uh, yeah. on, you know, on a planet in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's all meaningless, uh, you know, and life is just going to be full of pain and sorrow and trouble and then you die, right? Well, I, got, the, I, I got two quotes for you on that. Kierkegaard <laughs> wrote that he w- sometimes felt like a god in one moment, a grain of sand in the next. Mm-hmm. And uh, Walker Percy didn't put it nihilism, uh, hedonism. He put it angelism, bestialism. Yes, yes. Which which well, amounts to the same thing. Yeah, or at least it's analogous. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, so there's the nihilism on the one hand, uh, which you can hear... I would say very much in the music of the atonal composers. Um, you know, not that all of them were nihilists in their philosophical worldview, but the music itself seems to bespeak a sort of chilly, godless, orderless, um, you know, odorless maybe. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, it's, it's just pure. It's pure intellectualism, right? Yes. Exactly. There's the angelism for you. Yeah, um, right. You know, it's it's music that has no connection anymore with the body, with the flesh, with the emotions. Because music is supposed to have some connection with that. It just has to be a healthy one and a rightly ordered one. Um, but then with the hedonism, you know, it's the, you know, the techno music or rap music or or other genres nowadays that are just meant to pump people up and often to stir yeah. them to bad action. They're like they're like an amphetamine. Yeah. Exactly. So I mean, that's uh, you know. It, it's definitely the case that that our there are great modern composers. I talk about them in the book. I encourage people to get to know them. Yeah. Um, but the vast majority of the music that's being produced out there is is really um, worthless. It's garbage, uh, and it's not healthy for us to consume a diet of garbage. Well, I'm so glad to see the name Gerald Finzi in your book. We've had a number of shows on this radio show about Finzi and T.H. Noctalis a number of other uh, of his works, including Herbert Howells, but you have this wonderful list, and you say, you, know, you say to your reader, basically, if you want to get in on the greatness of music, the true beauty, try listening to the Durafoy Requiem. Mm-hmm. Try listening to the Goreski Symphony Number no. 3. Have you ever heard that in, in live? Unfortunately, I haven't, no. I wish I had. Tell, can you tell our listeners the story behind that symphony? The, the third symphony of Gretzky? Yeah. Yes, well, he, he was, I, I mean, I don't know the exact circumstances for composing it. I know that he found a text for it. Uh, the text that he set to music for soprano was a prayer that a young lady had, had etched into her prison cell, right, in a Nazi uh, prison where she was kept. Um, that, was there something else you had in mind? It's no, very, that I mean, it's, it's essentially a experience of a of a gulag. Yes. In music, but it's it's incandescently beautiful. Yeah. You know the one the one living composer you left off here, which I would recommend is John, Jonathan Leshnov. Okay. Okay. He's he is he's our. I mean, he as far as the melodic harmonic tradition, but not stale and not not a uh, copy. Jonathan yes. Leshnov. How do you spell uh, the last name? L e s h n o f f. He's been on this show and he's going to come back on again. He's written several explicit sacred pieces. He's Jewish. Mm, and, I, definitely, but he, I definitely want to check him out. He believes it. You know what I mean? He <laughs> yes, believes. Yes. It. Uh, you mentioned a moment ago you used the word transcendent. Um, I think that's a really good way 
of, in a way, summing up a good part of my message in this book, which is that man made in the image and likeness of God is is made to transcend earthly things, um, to to dwell with heavenly and divine things, to bring those things into his earthly life as well. It's a two-way street, like Jacob's ladder with the angels. Um, but the, but the, the transcendence of man over matter, over sensuality, over baseness, um, over selfishness, is what you get in the great art. The great art expresses that divine transcendence in us and the dignity um, that we can strive for the eternal and the infinite. Um, and all great music has that kind of that kind of longing or yearning for the eternal and the infinite. Um, or it has some reflection of the order, of the divine yeah. order in the music. I think Baroque music especially has that kind of yeah, wonderful... It, it expresses aspiration. Yes. Yes. And it's by the way, I want to tell our listeners that you are available for lectures. You now you travel and you give series of lectures. I think you've got some coming up in Louisiana. At the end of the show, we'll give our listeners information on how they can contact you. Right now, though, we're going to take a short break and we will be back. back with Peter Kwasniewski and his most remarkable book on music and silence. We'll be giving the title several more times, also how you can contact Peter if you would like to invite him for a lecture, some kind of presentation. Peter, I notice a very uh, sort of foundational use of the idea of logos and rationality, that, that music is not dissociated. It's not just an emotional thing. It's not just an effective thing, pleasurable thing. But that good music actually is formed by the logos and the rationality that pervades all of creation. Yes, yes. But this is a this is a debt that I owe to Joseph Ratzinger, um, who himself is indebted to many others, but. He, he made a special point of emphasizing that really, I guess, the central concept of, of Christianity is the logos, the word, the reason, the, 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 the transcendent reason and order of God and wisdom of God um, enters into the world. Um, it, it does so in creation, in the structures of creation, and then it does so... Uh, in a in a miraculous and transformative way through the incarnation of the logos, um, and and so the, the word the logos becomes flesh. And what Rothinger points out is that um, you know the way that man is created in the image of of God is that he is uh, like a little logos in imitation of the great uh, originative logos. Um, and so our lives need to be permeated with logos, with reason, with wisdom. Um, that doesn't mean being a rationalist, far from it. Um, we're supposed to be integrated people. But it does mean a kind of what he calls a reverse incarnation. That is, that as the Word became flesh, so in a sense our flesh is supposed to become Word. That meaning, you know, our passions, our sensuality, um, our appetites, our desires, all of which God created, they need to be, um, they need to be ordered and they need to be subordinated to the goods that man lives for, which would be love and friendship and family and God and country, you know, all of the, the goods that transcend the ego and the, and the, the self-imprisoned individual, right? Well, you know, Peter, the first thing I ever published in my career was a article on Maritain's aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And I gave it the title, The the ecstasy which is creation. Yes. That that seemed to that sort of your reading your your work here reminded me of going back 
so many years to how I tried to sum up Jacques Maritain's aesthetic. Yes, yes, and I mean Mar- Maritain was was someone who, much more than uh, than most uh, modern authors, who, who had a deep grasp of the artistic process and of of art. I mean, just think of art and scholasticism, that classic work. Well, he was, um, you, you know, know they, as you know, he was friends with a bunch of French composers, including yeah, and, Stravinsky, and, and, Russian and painters. Yes. So the. Uh, here, here's here's the challenge. You say there are uh, evidently gro- groups around the country of somewhat younger people who are tired of the praise and worship, tired of bongo drums and guitars and even pianos. You, you, you talk at length about pianos in worship. Uh, is there some way to network this group? <laughs> Yes. Well, fortunately, it's already happening. It's happening organically, um, thanks to, I would say, at least in this country, thanks to the Church Music Association of America. Um, their, their, their annual sacred music colloquium, which I've attended a number of times, uh, you know, attracts usually about 200 musicians, uh, many of them choir directors, so they're, they're people of influence who are going to, you know, in, influence many other people. Um, in their own parishes or, or schools, and all of those people—I mean, even you know—all the members of the CMAA—they're um, in touch. There's there's a Facebook group that brings people together. Um, you know, there are there's a journal, Sacred Music, that we all get several times a year. Um, so I, I think we know of one another's existence. You know, and there's a, there's also a forum where job postings are put so put up. So if a, a parish is hiring a music director and the the young, let's say, the young, forward-looking pastor wants to have chant and polyphony and good hymns in church, good organ music, uh, move away from the 70s where, where some people seem to be stuck, you know. Uh, he, can, he can put up a, a posting there and get applicants, you know, who are really talented church musicians and, and understand what they're doing. Yeah, I, I, for 5 o'clock Mass, I go to a so-called young person's Mass, and all the guys in the guitar part of the church have gray hair and beards. Yes. <laughs> I mean, they're Don't my age. Do you have any other options? Don't you have a church you could go to which has Chad the Bolivity? Like yeah, if I want to go through Atlanta traffic for an hour, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. That is that's but, the problem, uh, isn't it? But your incredible way of explaining in a convincing way why some music is better for your soul, better for your your body, better for your well-being, that actually lifts you toward the Spirit of God, is, I think, the, I think the best I've ever read. Because you, you rely on people like Newman and Rotzinger and Benedict Sixteenth. You got Victor Zuckerkondel in there, who's, who opened my eyes to the deeper meanings of music. And it seems to me that, I mean... Do arguments get the job done, or do you have to drag somebody to the symphony or to a, a great <laughs> yes. choral concert? Yes, yes. So this is this is a problem that comes up over and over again in in human life and Christian life. Uh, that is the the fact that that the truth has all of the good arguments on its side, um, but 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 evil has, in a sense, the culture on its side or the anti culture that we live in. You know, people are kind of stewed and pickled in. In you know, in crass and banal music all the time, to, to the extent that that they don't really even often know anything else exists. Um, you know, and uh, if they've ever heard a bit of Beethoven, it's probably just some kind of cliched quotation from the Fifth Symphony used in a you know in a in a cat food commercial or something, or, like that. or I mean, an elevator shaft. Yeah, and so um, so we're, we we are up against a huge. Um, uh, you know, um, juggernaut of bad taste and bad uh, corporate motivations, and you know, and capitalist greed, and just the whole realm of it. But I do think that that you're right. I mean, the only just like the only way to persuade people of the pro-life cause and of the of the Catholic vision of marriage, you know, as lifelong between a man and a woman is. Is hopefully by exposing people to to attractive, joyful, 
you know, relatively successful examples of Catholics leading, you know, leading a, a meaningful life with their spouses, with their children, um, being open to life, rejoicing in it. You know, that kind of example and the kind of love that people living that life can give to those who are needy or who are damaged or confused, you know, is certainly worth a lot more than any of the arguments um, at when it comes to converting and attracting people. But I think the arguments also need to be there um, because we need to form ourselves. There needs to be a certain amount of, shall we say, preaching to the choir <laughs> uh, so that we can understand, yes, our positions are rational, they are reasonable, they make sense, here's how they connect with one another, um, you know, here's how the Church's teaching on sacred music connects with the great Western philosophical tradition about music, you know, here's how it connects with your experience of life, you know, and we can, we can make these connections for people, and that's what I try to do in the book, of course. Well, you actually provide the reader what you call a model, model pastoral letter on sacred music. Yes. <laughs> which is about four or five pages long, which, you know, I, I'm thinking i got to, you know, print this out and send it to my pastor. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's funny you should, you should bring that up. I, just a, n- a number of years ago, um, I set myself the task of, you know, what, what, would, what would it be like if a bishop sat down one day at his desk and said, you know what, the music I'm hearing when I go around to do confirmations is just atrocious. This is a disaster. You know, we, we have to do something about this. You know, and, and if he just sat down and patiently wrote out the reasons, the arguments, the, you know, quoted the right church documents, whatever, uh, and then, you know, and published it, what would it look like? So I, I wrote that. Um, and, you know, many people have seen that letter because that particular thing was published online some years ago. Right. Um, and they said, you know what, this is, this is, this is accurate. It's convincing. It's well balanced. Um, you know, it's too bad that most bishops would never do anything like it. But <laughs> you, you write at the end of it. You say, "Thus, we can see how a true reformer, a good shepherd, acts quickly to remedy the evils that oppress his his flock." Now, let's talk about the uh, the fact that. The praise and worship stuff absolutely dominates the liturgy, at least in the United States. Is, am I right about that? Mm-hmm. Well, or let's let's not just let's not say praise and worship only, but let's just say generally modern styles, whether it's folksy or sort of lounge lizard type music, or <laughs> okay. um, yeah, uh, you like you strangers know, in the night become oh thou Holy Spirit or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And let's just say modern styles of music, which is what has been promoted by the establishment um, ever since the Second Vatican Council. Yeah, that that does still predominate, although much less than it did. I would say even even ten years ago. I know that that's not your experience at the youth mass that you go to, but um, but I, I I know because I'm connected to this world. I just know that. With practically every new music position that's opening up somewhere, the people filling those positions have more traditional ideas than oh, the people great. whose shoes they're filling. So, um, and I also know that there are a lot of priests who would like to go faster if they weren't um, if they weren't so nervous about the Susans in the parish, as they call them, with the speed dial to the chancery. Well, believe um, me, they're they're everywhere. Yeah, yeah, but you know, um, there will come a time when. When, basically, the the contemporary forms of art in the Catholic Church, and this is something you see also with architecture, because all the arts are parallel or analogous to each other in, in, in certain respects, um, the, the contemporary styles appeal to no one. I mean, they, they, right. were, all, they were all artificial tastes. Right. Um, they don't, so they're, not, they're not being sung in the church, in the masses I go to. Mm-hmm. They're being muttered, maybe, but not sung. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Yeah, nobody really likes likes this music. It, it's kind of a, um, a a a what's the what's the expression? Um, uh, not not a well kept secret, but uh, it's an open secret um, among church musicians that the the modern songs that are supposed to be so um, so promotive of active participation, you know, really just tend to bore they don't. people. Um, they don't. Or or not just bore them, but also the, the sometimes the melodies are extremely awkward to sing. 
um, I mean, a, a, a chant, a chanted Kyrie from the 12th century is often easier to sing, just just simply in terms of the the relationship of the notes and the way they form a, a nice melody, a memorable melody, you know, than something by Marty Haugen, you know. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, to, to name one of several. Now, let me ask you this question. Let's say a pastor gets up the guts to go to, you know, the, the 12 people sitting over there in the, in the choir who have been there for many, many years and really can't sing a note, any of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, even though the pianist and Bardrick might have, you know, be relatively talented. And you say, you know, we're going to change all this. Yeah. Have you known of any instances where this has worked? Oh, sure, sure. It's it, it's a tricky situation, obviously, um, because nobody, no no pastor wants to come in and smash things up too quickly. You know, have all kinds of hurt feelings, and um, you know. But but at the same time, it, it 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 is necessary to take decisive steps. Otherwise, people will be sunk in a rut of mediocrity forever. Um, and so, I, I do know priests who have tried various creative solutions. For example, okay, this music ensemble, they can keep doing this particular mass, but at this other mass, we're going to have a new music ensemble, new here meaning like traditional music, you know, not, uh, and, you know, and, but there are also times when it becomes necessary just to say, you know, thank you for your service here. We're, you know, in accordance with what the Vatican and the USCCB have said, we're going to be taking things in a somewhat different direction. And, you know, the person will be upset, but sometimes you can't really avoid that. Um, I know I know a case, just tell you a quick story, I know a case of somebody many years ago who was playing the guitar for uh, a Catholic parish and um, really p- playing it very much in a sort of um, Woodstock concert style. Yeah, you know? right. And... Uh, and and you know the, the the pastor at a certain point said to him I I can't really have this anymore it's not working well he he quit and went off in a huff and went to a Presbyterian or a Methodist church and just started doing the same thing there so what what that I mean and he he stopped coming to the Catholic church in other words he's not Catholic yeah well it it, it seemed like the music was the, the performance was the thing right yeah um, and you know that kind of error, which is such a basic error about church music, because it's not about the performance, it's not about the performance, this is why they absolutely shouldn't be up in front of everybody, where everybody can watch them perform, um, you know, that basic error is, you can't really treat that with kid gloves, I mean, you just have to, you just might have to bring down the axe on something like that, you know. You know, you also come down pretty hard on the Novus Ordo, could you explain that to our listeners? Well, I mean, I would say... In this book, at least my 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 um, in, my intention was not to to come down too harshly um, on that question. I mean, of course, I've written other books that are. That no, I wouldn't to, say it was harsh. It was just it was directed. It was direct. Yes, um, I think what the the way that the Novus Ordo comes up in this book is that uh, I just point out at, uh, that the the great music of the Catholic tradition, the chant and the polyphony. Um, was really, and the organ music, I would say, to a large extent, was really designed for, to, to integrate into a liturgy, um, in which there was a lot of time allotted for these moments of singing and music, a lot of time also for silence, where there was, there were multiple things going on at the same time, and therefore the singing could take place while other things were taking place, um, in the sanctuary. There was a kind of, uh, Almost like a holy confusion in a good sort of way. Uh, you know, lots of things happening at the same time in which music was a very major part. Um, and so the old forms of music that the church continues to recommend, they fit really well with the traditional Latin liturgy. They don't fit so well with the modern Roman rite of, right. of Paul VI. Um, they're a bit awkward there they're, because they have to be added on, like almost like units, right. um, to a to a sequence of events, all of which have to take place sequentially. Um, so, so there definitely is an awkwardness. About well, it's kind of like an early form of postmodernism, where you, where you architect and you just throw up, say, a a Greek temple on top of a building. You know. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Post postmodernism, in as much as it. 
um, it sort of freely mingles and quotes from different styles at different times, none of which really cohere together. Right. Um, there is that difficulty with the modern modular um, agenda style liturgical action. Um, and so I just, I think it's just reasonable or fair to point out that the, the old music works really well for the context that it naturally grew up in historically. Right. And that, that only makes sense. But it could also prompt us to, to ask the kind of questions that Ratzinger has asked and even Cardinal Seurat, um, namely, you know, are there some flaws? Are there some mistakes that were made, um, in the 60s and 70s? Uh, certainly I think there were, many people think there were, uh, that we need to revisit, you know, for the sake of the, the, a healthy musical liturgical life. I want to remind our, our listeners that I am talking to Peter Kosneski about his new book from Tan, Good Music, Sacred Music, and Silence. Uh, tell our listeners how they can get a hold of you, find your website, perhaps invite you to do some sort of lecture or presentation. Um, yes, so I, I do have a website, peterkosneski.com. Um, if you can manage to spell it, uh, then you you get a you get an extra prize. Uh, no, <laughs> you can find it. Google is uh, is forgiving in that regard. In that regard, or you um, can Google the name of the book. It'll take take you. There. Yes, yes. Now the book itself that we've been talking about, good music, sacred music, and silence, um, is published by Tan, uh, and so you can you can easily find it at their website. Um, it's also as usual uh, on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and various other places like that. So, but what in terms of actually contacting you personally? Just go oh, to your yes. website? Well, I, I meant to say on my personal website, there's a contact form, um, and I even give my email there, so it's very easy to get hold of me that way. The um, Can you remember the time when you, because uh, I can't, can you remember the moment in your life when you really felt yourself converted, as it were, to great music? Well, I can. it wasn't one moment, but I can remember exactly what, what took place. I was, so I, as I talk about in the book, I have a chapter called Why I Threw Away My Rock and Rap Cassettes. Yeah, I love um, that. I love and, that. And, and at the beginning of that chapter, you know, partly to establish my, my bona fides, you know, just, to, just to, to assure the reader that I do know what I'm talking about, um, I talk about all the different rock bands that I used to listen to, you know, as a kid and, and in high school, a whole list of them. Um, they're, you know, they're, they would seem pretty old-fashioned uh, by, you know, but, you know, The Police and U2 and Rush and all these, you know, Genesis, all these sort of groups. Um, and, and that's what my older siblings were listening to, so I was just kind of naturally in that environment. I, I was a moody blues guy, by the way. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I listened to Steely Dan and, I mean, just all kinds of things. And so... Uh, that was what that was my background, but um, I had this. I went to a, an all boys Catholic high school, and we had a teacher who ta who taught everybody the required music appreciation course. And I mean, he was he was clever about how he did it. He would show us he showed us the movie Amadeus because he wanted to oh, yeah. have an exciting story, even though it's yeah. largely fictitious. But you know, it, it brings Mozart's music into a, 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 a an exciting story, right? Yeah, played by um, Neville he, Mariner. Yeah, and he uh, he played you know he played Handel's Messiah, some of the highlights from that, and he uh, just whatever he picked, everything he picked was basically what you'd call nowadays like the top classics, you know the the uh, the, the Boston Pops, you know every, you know the things that everybody basically almost everybody would enjoy listening to at some mm -hmm. time or other, um, and I don't know what it was, but. That music, it really just knocked me off my feet. I, yeah, I, yeah. I just, I remember being so um, impressed and so kind of mystified that there was such complex music out there because I had never encountered anything like it before. I mean, it's like it's like going into another dimension. You know, it's like living your life in two dimensions and suddenly you find the third, or or living your life in in like a black and white world and suddenly you discover color. You know, it, oh, yeah. it was well that, that kind of a step for me. Um, and I started borrowing, you know, on the sly. I started borrowing 
CDs huh. from this professor. He he belonged to that place called Musical Heritage Society. I'm sure. Oh, you know I was one of those. Yeah. yeah, and so he had all those CDs. They were kind of clumsy, just sort of black and white, very very primitive by today's standards. You know, right. the graphics and so on. And uh, I, I just would borrow tons and tons of of CDs of all different periods and composers and just listen to them ra- almost randomly because I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and I, I sort of gave myself, uh, you know, a, a deep, deep dive uh, immersion into this whole repertoire. Uh, and I, you know, I think it wasn't, it wasn't really, um, uh, it, it wasn't a deliberate plan. It was just a kind of following of the tugging of my heart that I wanted to get into this music and find oh, out yeah. more about it. Um, and so, and that the, something similar happened with Gregorian chant. I discovered that quite by accident because I'd never heard it in a church. I just, I just heard a recording of it, uh, and and I thought this is amazing stuff. You know, it's very exotic, right? And it's, a, it's like uh, now, I don't know. It's, it it, uh, it it didn't really initially strike me as Catholic liturgical music because, as I said, it's just, it just didn't exist in New Jersey in the 1980s. You know. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's that that was my beginning recordings. Thank goodness for recordings. I mean that's that's what started it all. Or now on YouTube, you can you can listen to anything. Yes, if you can put up with those dumb commercials. Yes, it's true. <laughs> well, that Corn Gold Symphony I sent you doesn't have a commercial. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, and, and speaking of online, I mean, of course, the internet is is uh, you know it, it brings so many evils to us, um, but. But also, it brings a lot of goods if we know how to use it. Um, yeah. and something like Spotify, you know, if I mention this in the book, if somebody goes onto Spotify and they type in, you know, Yordi Saval or Hesperian Twenty One, right. um, they'll they'll tap into a vein of gorgeous music that could last them for their whole lives. Yes, so. that's wonderful. Now, Peter, we've come to the end of our time together. I want to invite you back. Would you come? Yes, of course. Okay, because we've got lots to talk about. And uh, again, your book from Tan is entitled Good Music, Sacred Music, and Silence. And I want everybody to buy it and read it. And so I really do appreciate your taking this time, Peter, to spend with us on Church and Culture. Wonderful. Thank you. I've enjoyed the conversation. It's always great to talk to a fellow music lover. When we will continue to talk, and all of you are listening... Uh, I'll be back in a moment with another wonderful guest. <laughs> 